Father God in heaven, it is a joy to know you. It is a thrill to have been saved by your rescuing hand. Thank you, Lord, for your life within us. Thank you for your ever-increasing light in our lives. And Lord, we do bless and praise you for the scriptures, the scriptures which are sufficient to meet the needs of the believer. Lord, as we study your ways here today, open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the message today is Sin, Salvation, and the Law. Romans 7 verses 1 through 13 is where we will be. But just to kind of back up and take a running leap. When you come to the book of Romans, we have the greatest news that has ever been revealed to man. And that is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. One of the most beloved sections of the Bible that comes to my mind as I come to Romans 7 is found in John 3.16. If you hold your place in Romans 7, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3 to verse 16. I'd like to read through it so we have it in mind. John 3.16 is quoted so often and is known by so many, but I think it's good from time to time to read the few verses that come after it as well. In John 3.16, the Lord says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Some of the most wonderful words you will ever read. And may I just pause right here and say, if you're here today and you're feeling lost and desperately sinful, that you're so sinful God could not or would not save you, these words are for you. If you will believe upon him, no matter how sinful you are, he will save you today. Put your trust in him today. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's one way to heaven. It is the only way it is God's only Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Here's a marvelous thing. You have people out there living their lives, and some seem to have this edge of goodness to them. They seem to have this thing about them where they want to follow God. Then there are others who absolutely make it known to everyone they don't want to follow God. The person who says to you, I am a good person, if that is true, then they will come to Jesus Christ. That's what he's teaching us right here. If someone tells you, I'm a good person and God will probably accept me and negotiate when I stand before him on that day, first of all, know this, he doesn't negotiate. Secondly, know this, he will accept you on that day and allow you into his heaven if you believe on his son in this life here and now. 
He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. If someone really is a good person, they're going to respond to the light of the gospel in Jesus Christ and come to him in salvation. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what they say out of their mouth. They're not really good and they don't want to be good if they won't come to Christ. This is a very telling section here. Now, as the person then comes to the light and they're saved, rescued by God, how does this actually happen? It happens by a work of God's Holy Spirit in the human heart. It's not just cognitive. It isn't just a mental thing where you hear information and process it with your brain. It is so much more than that. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit on the heart. God takes all that is revealed in the Bible, his law, as it were, the revelation of a holy God, and he comes to a human heart and he begins to reveal and impress those truths on the heart. Sometimes even when the Bible hasn't been preached to an individual, the Lord can do whatever he wants to save a soul. It's his truth. It's his light. And by the Holy Spirit, he comes to the human heart. Let me show you this. This is how it works in salvation. Turn in your Bible then back to Romans and look at Romans 2.14. God impresses his law on the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit. Romans 2.14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Paul is, of course, at that point talking to the Jew who lived under the law, Gentiles not under the law. He says, in responding to God, live as though God has revealed it to their hearts, because that's what happens. The way a man or woman comes to know God, the way a man or woman is saved so they go to heaven when they die, it happens through a work of the Holy Spirit impressing the law of God upon your heart, and it drives you then to Christ. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read of why it happens. Can you turn there? Second Peter 3.9. Familiar passage. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Second Peter 3.9. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the heart of God. So here's how it works out in light of what we have just seen. He sent Jesus Christ into the world to pay the debt that all men and women owe, to die the death that all should die, and to bear the sin that all should bear. He ordained that when men and women believe in Jesus Christ and accept his work on their behalf, their sin is then forgiven forever, and they become then partakers of his divine nature. So that every believing sinner then in that process of salvation is then equipped for eternal life in heaven with God. And it is all through Jesus Christ. So we read in Romans 6.23, if you turn there, the very last verse of chapter 6, to get us set up for chapter 7, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now at this point, Paul is anticipating the reaction of those who were under the law, the Jew, 
they would have a reaction at this point. They would be wondering, well, if it's all by grace in the end, why did God ever give the law? That would be the reaction of the Jew. If you were a knowledgeable Gentile, you would look at it in, in light of the whole scripture is the law of the Lord. Either way, the idea of why then did God ever give the law and why do you talk about dying to the law? So in anticipation of the questions that follow each line of teaching, he raises the question and articulates it, then he answers it. That's what he does here. So as we come to Romans 7, we have simply two things we're going to see. We have the death to the law, and then we have the ministry of the law. So in verses 1 through 6, he talks about death to the law, what that's all about. And may I say right here, you want to keep it as simple as you can. So as you read through the first six verses of Romans 7, if you keep it simple, you'll understand it. If you try to complicate it at all, you'll never understand it. And you won't understand the rest of Romans 7, and then you won't understand Romans 8. What you're going to also see right now is why we spend so much time talking about in Romans 6 the death of the old man, and that we're new in Christ, that the death was a real death. Now you're going to see that come up in his reasoning about our death to the law. So we find here, in Christ we die to the law and we are placed under the reign of grace. And what he does is he uses a very simple analogy, the analogy of marriage, as it is found under their law. In verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, he is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So the analogy of marriage, simple reference to the law of marriage under the Mosaic law, which these Jews are familiar with that he's addressing at the moment. And he uses law interchangeably, the whole law of God and the law of Moses. When he addresses the Jews, as right here, law of Moses. But it's very simple, the analogy of marriage. What he wants to say to them is that we have died to the law and we have then a new relationship with God. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So we have gone through a process of death, and thus we are able to have a new relationship to God, to our Lord Jesus Christ, and thus not under the law. So looking then at the whole Bible as a revelation of God's law, did God's law die? Has it gone out of existence? No, we have a full copy of it right here. And this is God's revelation of himself to sinful man on planet earth. And for all those that do not yet know the Lord, his law is still in place. And they are held accountable as sinners to a holy God by his law. The law did not die. It still has its effect and rules over men. 
Here's what happened. We died to the law, and it no longer has dominion over us. Now follow this. Though we died to the law, we are not lawless to just live as we please. Rather, we are united to Christ, sharing his life, and thus walking in newness of life. Paul climaxes this whole argument in chapter 8 and verse 4. We'll get to it, but let's just refer to it right now. It's an amazing statement. Romans 8, 4 climaxes the argument that the righteousness of the law, what does it say? Romans 8, 4. This is one of the miracles of your salvation, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And we'll get to that when we get in Romans 8 and we'll study it in detail. But it is the climax of what he is saying right now. So the way it works out is to be dead to the law does not mean we lead lawless lives. It simply means, follow this, the motivation and dynamic of our lives does not come from being under law. It comes from God's grace through our union with Jesus Christ, the very motivation and dynamic of our lives. In other words, let me make it as simple as I can. We are freed from trying to be made right with God by what we do or do not do. That's it. That's being right with God through keeping law. We are freed from that. We are now under the grace of God. We're saved and we're made right with God by his grace. Death to the law. The old man dies, there's a new man born, and we are brought into the realm of grace. Let's go now to the ministry of the law. This is fascinating. In verses 7 through 13, why did God give Israel a law they couldn't keep? Have you ever thought about that? And by the time the rabbis were done with it, whoa, they really couldn't keep it because they added a lot to it. In the Talmud, you have all the comments of the rabbis on God's law. You ended up with 613 things the law demanded of you. Why did God give the Israelites a law they couldn't keep? I mean, sometime you're going to ask that question. Let's ask it right now. In Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. The idea would be if we have to die to it, there must be something wrong with it. No. Why did God give Israel a law they couldn't keep? To drive them in faith to God. That's the answer. To drive them in faith to God. You might say, well, did it work? Yes, when you found a humble heart there. Obviously, Daniel had a humble heart. He was driven in faith to God. Obviously, Ezekiel, you could take any one of the prophets. You could take Moses, the lawgiver. He was saved by faith. Wherever there was a humble heart, the law did drive them to faith in God. However, sadly, not all of them responded that way. Even though Habakkuk 2.4 says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just, the just will live by faith. So God gave them a law they couldn't keep to drive them in faith to him. Not all were driven in faith to him, however. The Israelites as a whole did not come to the Lord in faith. Read the Old Testament. Why didn't they come to God by faith? They were content with their self-righteousness and they believed they could merit God's favor on their own. In fact, if you look at it very closely, they thought that they already merited God's favors because they were the chosen people. 
They were chosen by God to be the light of the world so that the world could look at the divine activity in and through them and upon them and around them and then look to them as having the one true God and then see Jesus Christ come down to planet earth as a human being, step out from right in the midst of the Israelites and declare to the world the way of salvation. That's what they were chosen for. They were given a mission by God. They took the fact they were chosen and became proud about it and self-righteous about it. We are the chosen people, so God accepts us already. And thus, in their self-righteousness, they failed to be driven in faith to the Lord. As a result, they were then under the curse of the law. I want to show you something in Galatians 3.10. Galatians 3.10. For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse of the law. Galatians 3.10 For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just will live by faith. Paul there quoting Habakkuk. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. All of that is to say that people have the wrong idea of the law. These people had the wrong idea of the law. The idea that they had in their minds was, you know, you could break this or that aspect of the law, but you keep on going, doesn't really matter. That's to view breaking the law as riding your bike, moving along, going forward, and one of the spokes breaks. Bang! You hear it break. You pull over, you stop, you examine it. Oh my, a spoke has broken. Well, thank the Lord for hundreds of others. And you hop back on your bike and you propel yourself forward away you go on your bike ride. They were looking at breaking the law like that. Ah, break one here, break a commandment there. It doesn't really matter. We keep going and so on. We keep enough that God's happy with us. What Paul is saying right here in Galatians is that it's not like that at all. It is more like a pane of glass. You strike the pane of glass in one little area the whole thing shatters and falls into little pieces. That's it. That's it. So to be under the curse of the law is to be one that can't fulfill the law. And if you only can't fulfill one, you've broken the whole law in that sense. That is why we read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way to ever have a life perfect before God is to come to the only one who ever lived a perfect life before God, and that's Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life on your behalf, and then he died, listen to this, he died for the sinful life that you have lived. He lived a perfect life on your behalf, then he died for the sinful life that you have lived. And what he does is he makes an exchange as your substitute. And he imputes to you the life he lived and the death he died on your behalf. And you are then given risen life in him. A brand new life in him. That is what salvation is all about. So why did God give Israel a law they couldn't keep? To drive them in faith to him. To rescue them. Now how does the law help to bring you to Christ? The law reveals sin. And I'm speaking now of the law of the Lord as a whole. The law reveals sin. Follow how this works because this is how people get saved. This is how you were saved if you're born again today. In Romans 7, 7. Can you look there? 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. What happens now is Paul the Apostle is going to give to us his testimony on how he came to Christ. You want to know what's going on in Romans 7? When you get to verse 7, Paul begins to give his testimony. He starts using the word I, me, I, me. This is how he came to be saved. He says here, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness except the law had said you shall not covet. Now follow this. Paul the apostle was a self-righteous Pharisee. Very self-righteous. According to the law, he exceeded all of his brethren. He records that in Philippians 3. He was a Pharisee who knew the scriptures. However, he was blinded by self-righteousness. Imagine how proud he was hearing the gospel, how he would react. Hearing about Jesus, how he would react. We know how he reacted. He persecuted the church. He was in his self-righteousness with all of his religion. He was one who had indeed a very dim view of sin. In other words, all people by nature have a very dim awareness, follow this thought, of their own sin. Everybody by nature has a very dim awareness of their own sin. Like the words spoken of by a very guilty husband to his wife after several hours of pastoral counseling, the husband said this, Well, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget what you did to me. Aha, uh-huh. very dim view of his own sin. Or like the mother reprimanding her son, I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. <laughs> we all by nature have a very dim view of our own sin. We can see it very clearly on others, a very dim view in ourselves. Well, Paul is like that, and even more so because he was so religious and so self-righteous. But then he says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness except the law had said, you shall not covet. Now as he begins his testimony, now we're given some insight as to what led up to his dramatic conversion out on the Damascus Road. We are familiar with the dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul from Saul to Paul on the Damascus Road. Are we familiar with what was going on in his heart? Leading up to that, we think he's just charging along without a thought in the world, and then boom, he's converted by Jesus Christ without a thought in the world about his own sin or conversion. Not so. This is what's going on in his heart leading up to that radical conversion as God prepares him to be saved. He comes to read about coveting in the law, and he starts to realize that it applies to him. Up until that point, before the Holy Spirit worked within him and showed him what was there in the law, his enlightenment was blocked by those who had taught him. Had he been taught, well, oh yes. He was schooled by Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers of their time. However, he was schooled wrong by Gamaliel. It is possible to be well-schooled, now use that term carefully, and schooled wrong. You could be thoroughly schooled in a line of thought and taught wrong. He was taught wrong, obviously. That's why he rejected Christ for so long. You could be well taught and taught thoroughly wrong. It takes the Holy Spirit then to break through all of that. And that's what happened to Paul. 
And what happened to him then was he began to understand through the work of the Holy Spirit that all these things in the law were about the heart. He was all about the outside, keeping it all tidy on the outside. God is all about your heart. Look at Matthew 5.17 with me for a moment. Matthew 5.17. Jesus is preaching along and he turns to talk about matters of the heart. Now, because all of the people had been taught wrong by the Pharisees and the scribes, and because they themselves believed wrong, and they were going to be lost forever, he's trying to help them, help them understand, well, what was God after with the law anyway? The heart. So in verse 17, he says, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and he probably gestures right there to the Pharisees. He always was using the example of what was nearby. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, wow, the Lord didn't pull any punches. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Oh my gosh. Here they are out there all dressed up in their outfits, their religious outfits, the hat, the robes, the vibe, the tone of voice. And here they are, the religious ones, and they're teaching everyone the way. And he turns to them and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not go to heaven. Implication, these men are not going to heaven. The ones that profess to teach you the way, they're so religious and they're completely lost because they've missed the whole point of God's word. It isn't about the outward. It's all about the inward. And so now he starts to correct the way they've been taught. You have heard it taught to you. I say to you, it's the heart. You have heard it taught by them. I say to you, it's not the way they said it. On the outside, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. This is the way you come to know you're sinful. This is the way you come to get to the point where you can actually then be, can I put it this way, savable. Savable. So as he teaches them the matters of the heart, this is what happened to Paul. This is what he discovered. The law said, when he saw the law said, you shall not covet, he saw it was aimed at the heart, and he saw that in his heart there was covetousness, and his sinfulness was then revealed to him by the law. And I can't imagine what then went racing through his head because he knew so much scripture. When he finally looked at the page and saw covetousness and saw it was about his heart and he knows so much then his, the way his brain worked, he was such a genius with the scripture, back he would go and run through it all and start to get all corrected by the work of the Holy Spirit enlightening him and he sees our first parents in the garden as they covet the fruit and they covet to be like God and thus they are sinful before God. He thinks about Joseph's brothers in the Old Testament and how they coveted his favorable position with the father and it caused all the sin to try to kill Joseph, send him into slavery and all of that. He would think of Joshua and the time of Joshua and going to conquer Jericho and how 
Achan saw the Babylonian garment and wanted this valuable stuff. And so it led him into sin and caused great trouble for God's people. He would think about Ahab, how he coveted Naboth's vineyard. He would have known all these things. This is what was at the heart of the whole vicious, sinful thing that happened with Amon, Amnon and Tamar, as he lusted after his own sister. And Absalom, who wanted his father's crown, David's crown. And then moving into the Old Testament, this is what you see with Ananias and Sapphira. What they were coveting was prestige. Simon the sorcerer wanted magical power, and so he wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Demas, having left Paul hanging in the lurch because he coveted the things of this present world. Diotrephes is written about in the third epistle of John as one who wanted only preeminence among God's people, so he was willing to do anything else to get that. Paul suddenly realized, wow, covetousness is a huge sin, and it's all about the heart. The law revealed to him he was a sinner. The second thing that the law does, not only reveals sin, but it arouses sin. This is fascinating when you think about it. In Romans 7, 8, if you look there, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire... For apart from the law, sin was dead. It may be hard to understand at first, but once you get it, it's easy. The whole thing is that the commandment found in the law of the Lord brought a response from sin. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, he ends up being guided through a series of revelations by this man, Interpreter. Interpreter takes him to this room, takes Christian to this room in this house. And here's an individual there in a very dusty room, who grabs a broom and starts to sweep all over the place. <laughs> and dust is flying everywhere. And then a woman comes into the room and sprinkles water and all the dust goes down and then she cleans it up very quickly. He interprets and he says, all that dust thrown into the air is like sin. The broom is like the law when it hits sin, and it just aggravates sin, and it gets this reaction all over. The gospel is like the woman coming in with the water, and the gospel waters it all down, brings you to Christ, and it's also very manageable as you bring your sin to Christ. But the reaction to sin from the law is a flurry, like the dust all over the room. The law aggravates sin. You want to know why? Because self-will and rebellion and pride were all involved in the very original sin from man's heart in the garden. We, as the offspring of Adam and Eve, having inherited their sinful nature, when, when the law or the command of God hits the heart, then what happens is that the self-will, the rebellion, the pride that's all in there raises its ugly head. And then basically the idea is don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. That was in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Put me in the garden. Tell me not to eat of the tree. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to eat. I'll be like you, God. This is why people sin for the sin of it. <laughs> Let me give you an example. St. Augustine in his confessions describes how the principle worked in his life. He said, there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. It's a good one, isn't it? That's a keeper, rascally youths. Anyway, back to the account. 
He said, we took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon it ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty of better pears at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence. The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition against stealing. End quote. Well, there it is. There it is. You see, this is the answer then to a very perplexing question. The more of the law you know, the more you assert yourself against it in an unsaved condition. This is the answer then to this question that may have perplexed you. Here's how it works out. You're witnessing to someone you love. You start to give them all this Bible knowledge. Did you know the Bible says? Oh, no, really? Yes. And the Bible says, is that right? That's in the Bible too. Yes. And may I tell you further, Jesus said, oh, no kidding. Jesus said that, yes. And the Bible says, and the Bible says, and the Bible says, and you're enlightening them. And they listen, and oh my, you know, I've never heard anyone say it to me the way you've said it. You have a way about you. All of that Bible says is amazing. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to come to the Lord immediately. So this goes on for a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. And all of a sudden, there's an about face. And they are hardened to you, and their life starts to get worse. They were sinful before, but now they're way worse, and they're getting more and more sinful, and you're going, oh, what's happening? Here, I've been witnessing to them. I've been sharing the Bible with them, and they're more sinful than ever. And now they start to get very recalcitrant with you. That's resistant, very resistant with you. And you're going, how does this work? Why is this happening? How could this be? Now we know the answer. It is that sinful rebellion again in man, the word of God stirs up the sin. It aggravates it. And thus you're witnessing to a friend or spouse and they seem to get worse. Or, to take it a little further, you have a person who starts to come to church. They seem to start to become a Christian. And they go along for a little while and there's a few changes they start to make and then boom, they're gone. And out they go, back into the world, and they're far more sinful than they ever were before they ever were exposed to the gospel and the word of God. Why? Because they're yet unconverted. You thought they were converted. They're not converted, and their sinful nature is reacting and rebelling to all the new light that they have. The law reveals sin. The law arouses sin. Let me take you to a further thought, and this is where you're now set up for real salvation. The law devastates the sinner. In Romans 7, 9, he says, looking there, if you could, he says, I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, 
deceived me and by it killed me. What's he talking about? Verse 9, he says, I was alive, I died. Let me read to you what William Hendrickson has articulated concerning Paul's thoughts right here. He's kind of put it all together for us. Basically, the meaning is this. There was a time when I felt secure under no conviction of sin. At that time, the full implication of the law had not yet registered in my consciousness. It had not yet become an unbearable burden on my heart. I thought that morally and spiritually I was doing okay. This is how Paul became saved. I thought that morally and spiritually I was doing okay, quite well in fact. But when the commandment came, that is, when it was brought home to me that the law really demanded, I realized what a great sinner I was, that I died. That is, here it is, that was the end of me as a self-satisfied, self-righteous, self-secure person. That's what died. It was the end of my self-righteous, self-satisfied existence. This is how you get saved. He says, the law was to me death. In other words, the more I tried in my own strength to live out the demands of the law, the more defeated I became until I was devastated before God. That's how you get saved. This is why the gospel must be preached in churches. This is why you should never be allowed to go to church and hear some 15-minute simple positive speech, five steps to a happy Monday. Because it's not enough. This is why the Word of God must be preached in its fullness. Until you become devastated in your sin before God, you are not willing to come and be rescued by Him. Paul got to the point where he was devastated. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5.3 when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bankrupt before God. Desperate for God to rescue you. Blessed are those that mourn. They will be comforted. God says, I draw near to those who have a broken heart, a contrite spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. These are the ones the Lord rushes in to save. The law reveals sin, arouses sin, devastates the sinner, and finally shows the sinfulness of sin itself. And here's where we end this time. In Romans 7:12. Therefore, in light of all this, the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become, what's the last two words? Exceedingly sinful. And thus, Paul charges off to Damascus. He has letters from the Sanhedrin which allow him to go to Damascus and imprison Christians, torture Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem and send them to their death. He charges off to do that. Meanwhile, what you don't see so obvious Deep in his heart, this is already going on. For the first time in his life, he's feeling so sinful. He's feeling so inadequate. He can't manage the inside. Now that this has happened to him, he's becoming savable. So they're charging down the Damascus road. Out of nowhere, Jesus appears to him. Not as he was when he was on earth, but in his resurrection glory. Jesus appears to him. He falls into the dust and he looks up and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And there he's blinded by the glory of the risen Christ for three days. After the three days, when a man comes to pray for him, he goes off in a new direction. He becomes the greatest champion of Christianity the world has ever known. Where do you get that kind of transformation? It was all the plowing work of the Holy Spirit going on in his heart. So when Christ revealed himself to him right there, he was ready to respond because he already felt his desperate need because of his sinful sin in his own heart. You understand? Until you come to that place, you can't be saved. That's why the happy gospel, the cheap, easy believism, greasy grace, as it's sometimes called, just believe the facts and go to heaven. It's not right, and it leaves people unconverted, and they don't die well as a result. This is the good news. This is the best news that has ever been given to man. You come to the place where you see you're a sinner before God, and he's ready to rush in and save you utterly. I'm going to close now with the words of Robert Murray McShane. A man who lived to be 30 years old, barely 30 when God took him, and yet he'd already plumbed the depths of the knowledge of God and his grace in such a marvelous way. He pulls together everything that's been in this message. Listen to these words as we close. It's from a poem that he wrote called Jehovah Sidkenu. Jehovah Sidkenu or Sidkenu comes from Jeremiah 23, 6. The Lord our righteousness is what it means. I once was a stranger to grace and to God. I knew not my danger and felt not my load. Though friends spoke in rapture of Christ on the tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. I offered with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure and John's simple page. But in when they pictured the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah Sidkenu was nothing to me. Like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah said, Canaan, was nothing to me. When free grace awoke me by light from on high, then legal fear shook me, I trembled to die. No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah said, Canu, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before the sweet name. My guilty fear banished when boldness I came to drink at the fountain of life, life-giving and free. Jehovah Sidkenu is now all things to me. Jehovah Sidkenu, my treasure and boast. Jehovah Sidkenu, I ne'er can be lost. In thee shall I conquer by flood and by field, my cable, my anchor, my breastplate and shield. Then this, even treading the valley, the shadow of death, this watchword shall rally my faltering breath. For while from life's fever my God sets me free, Jehovah said Canaan, my death song shall be. It's all about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your great love to us. We thank you that you love us, though sinful. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great rescue operation. Salvation, so rich, so full, so free. I pray that you would send us out, Lord, today with a fresh sense of gratitude for all you have done for us. Some of these things are 
hard to understand in terms of the law and the way that the Jews thought and all of that. But one thing is easy. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I am saved utterly by you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Praise you. Lord, may we be bearers of your grace. May we be those who shine your light to a dark world around us. Use us to lead others to you. Work your saving faith in every heart we ask this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.